Let us look to the Lord in prayer. We bless you, Father, for meeting with us in today's service and making your presence known. Thank you so much for the grace that came through the choir and the orchestra joining in with the praise band today so that we could sing the songs of Zion to your great glory. Our hearts are full of thinking about all of your grace and power toward us. Honor and strength and wisdom is all yours. Glory be to your name. Would you now, God, um, meet with us in words? Would you give us a word from heaven? Would you speak to each heart? Would you use me as your instrument now to magnify the name of Christ? Would you do it for the glory of your name among the people that we know in Oak Park and Chicagoland and around the world? Would you do it, God, so that many ministries like World Vision can be your instruments of grace and mercy to billions around the world. Bless Calvary Memorial Church, oh God. Bless Pastor Todd and Pastor Gerald and the elders as they meet together in retreat this weekend, trying to hear from you, to gain wisdom and knowledge from you so they might lead us and guide us and shepherd our souls in a way that is pleasing in your sight. Bless them, Father. May they hear from you and guide us through this Antioch process in a way that is wise and honorable to you. Bless now the remainder of our time together. Magnify your name among us, your glory in all the earth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Still very much in the news is the investigation into Russia's tampering with the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. Wanting to ensure a leader would come to fore who would not continue Obama-era sanctions, the Russians bought social media time and planted supporters and protesters on both sides of the campaign in order to sway the election in favor of President Trump. In the aftermath of the election, it seems that they received their desired outcome. The New England Patriots, upset in this year's Super Bowl by the Philadelphia Eagles, are famously known for secretly video recording the practices of their opponents so that they might know the other team's playbook. The Pats also are known for Deflategate, the episode in which future Hall of Fame quarterback Tom Brady used slightly and illegally underflated footballs in the 2014-2015 AFC Championship because he found those better to handle and throw. The Patriots could not leave the chances of winning and being champions to hard work on and off the field. They kept the outcomes within their control. Suspecting they would go to such lengths this year, the Eagles ran fake plays in their practices leading up to the Super Bowl. One might also tell of a well-known public school system in an eastern state that manipulated high school graduation rates in order to have rates that would make the system shine in the eyes of all. Or one could tell of a city college serving a poor neighborhood doing the same and winning a huge corporate grant for tripling its graduation rates. It is commonplace for people to manipulate life's dealings so that they can gain the successful 
expedient outcomes they desire from the dealings with no thought of greater cost. Yes, an election won, but with the ire of the world and possible retaliation. Yes, a sports dynasty, but always with question marks over the trophies. Graduation rate numbers, yes, but hearings on the success and also the loss of the public's trust. From our distance, it would be easy to castigate such manipulative efforts. Why not extend practice times or offer more to struggling students? Why accept the immediate accolades without regard for future ramifications? But believers, likewise, often live for the immediate rewards we think we can gain in our own strength. That is, we enjoy presenting a Christian life that brings admiration of fellow believers, for then we feel we are pleasing in the sight of God. Yet in truth, the successes we secure on our Christian journey by our own means are things we should put away in order to gain something greater, that greater thing that we really want. What we really want is not success in the eyes of people. What we really want is the reward of the Father. The reward of the Father. In our passage, Jesus directly mentions rewarding from the Father three times in verses 4, 6, and 18. And each of these is in contrast to rewards already received for actions which Jesus will condemn. They have received their reward already, Jesus says. Indirectly, also in verse 8, Jesus speaks of reward when he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And in verse 14, when he says, your father will forgive you if you forgive others. The reward of God the Father will tie together the disparate ideas in 6, 1 through 24. Matthew wants us to see that pleasing God the Father is at stake in this passage. Jesus speaks on three regular Christian practices that often are twisted to make you seem spiritually mature in the public eye without actual concern for the kingdom of God and his king. Easily, Jesus' discussion could break into several points. I think I counted at least 12, especially when one considers what could be said about each line of the Lord's prayer. However, I'm not going to discuss 12 points today. I know you're getting nervous there, but you don't have to. I only want to focus on two ideas in 6, 1 through 18 and tie in the main idea of 6, 19 through 24 practically so that we can live for the reward of God the Father. First, those who pray to please the King gain the reward of God the Father. Verse 5 again says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In prayer, we are seeking God and trying to approach God. Sometimes we have to do it in public, like praying in our small group or ABF, the youth group, before a family gathering or a sports event. 
we then are asking, inclining, beseeching, seeking, adoring, thanking, and worshiping the almighty creator and redeemer and no one else. How interesting then it is to hear Jesus say that sin, and specifically the sin of pride, has the ability to enter into our prayers at a point in which we are supposed to be saying to the Lord, Lord, I am in utter dependence upon you with no means of helping myself. I adore you and thank you and no one else, and I seek you for cleansing from my sin. At that very moment, we can be filled with pride and say, in effect, and none of what I just said to you, Father, is really my desire because I just want people to think that the words I'm using mean that I know how to seek you in total dependency. On these verses, 20th century pastor, British pastor, the late D.M. Lloyd-Jones wrote, quote, sin, Jesus shows us here, is something which follows us all the way, even into the very presence of God. Sin is not merely something that tends to assail and afflict us when we are far away from God in the far country, as it were. Sin is something so terrible, according to our Lord's exposure of it, that it will not only follow us to the gates of heaven, but, if it were possible, into heaven itself. It sometimes produces this result, that when we try to persuade ourselves that we are worshiping God, We are actually worshiping ourselves and doing nothing more. For many years in my early ministry, I struggled with praying in public. It was the last thing that I wanted to do on a worship service, for I couldn't figure out if I was praying for a response and acknowledgement and agreement of the people, or if I were praying for the Lord to hear me. Yet I was always glad to read uh, Scripture publicly because I could practice reading and make sure that I read clearly. I could get the emphasis right where needed and use proper intonation, and I could change the voices for the various characters like we all do in our head when we read because it's proper to do that. One day I realized that both my mental struggle with praying in public and my gladness to read Scripture suffered from the same thing. Both revealed a desire to have affirmation from people and a desire to keep from stumbling, failing, or embarrassing myself in front of others. Neither response has God the Father as the focus, no matter how nicely we try to dress it up by saying either A, no, no, don't call on me to pray before, because I prefer not to be seen. I just like to be in the shadows. Or B, we should want to do our best before the Lord at all times, where best actually means without mistake or perfectly polished. Both of those ideas still deny the truth that is in this passage. If you are really not concerned about being seen, then even in public, go pray only for the Lord to hear your prayers. And if excellence is your concern, rather than focusing on freedom from mistakes, focus on a heart that only wants to please the Lord. That heart, says Jesus, is cultivated in a private prayer habit in which you become comfortable being in the presence of God alone and recognize when you are devoid of self and only before his very face. If you grew up in a middle class or upper class home 
in which you ate overachievement for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, fighting against pleasing others will be a whole new orientation for you. In fact, you probably will find reasons to challenge the very thing that I'm about to say. And I know I'm talking to the right crowd because most of you live in Oak Park or you live in River Forest. And even if your children are not going to the best schools in this area, you stuck them in Christian school. And before you send them off in the morning, you feed them that same breakfast, lunch, and dinner that you used to eat as a child. Let me explain. You grew up being told you must be the best. You must win. You will be the valedictorian. You will get into the best school, even the best Christian schools. You will have the best first impression, the best presentation, the best performance, the best speech, or the most outstanding outfit because you must be on the medal stand and the object of applause at the award ceremony. You must not bring shame on your family. And the pressure was even higher if you came from an honor and shame community or if you are first or second generation in the country. You must succeed where your older siblings and your parents and maybe even your grandparents already have succeeded. You did not get to be average or relax or settle for a B plus. As an adult then, you and I still live with the pressure in our Christian circles to keep up the facade of perfection no matter how stressful it is to do so. So can we make a decision today? Can we just stop jumping through those hoops? Can you determine that you want to please the Father above all else and only, and that to do so means that you do not have to show your stuff, have all the answers, and be absolutely successful in all things? You don't have to be the perfect wife, perfect husband, be perfect at work, have the perfect uh, marriage, be perfect at homeschooling, and also have the perfect decor inside your home and the perfect landscaping when people are walking up to your house. You need to turn that people-pleasing engine off and start doing things to be seen where there is no human applause. The applause we want needs to come from above. Second, those who forgive the sins of others gain the reward of the Father. Those who forgive the sins of others gain the reward of God the Father. Jesus goes into explaining the model of praying through the Lord's Prayer, and in verse 9, he says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Then down in verse 14, after the prayer proper, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In the only idea in the Lord's Prayer that receives commentary, Jesus is talking to people whose righteousness is to excel that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says back in 5, 17 through 20. Therefore, he is talking to his disciples. He calls them up to the mountain and begins to speak them at the beginning of the Beatitudes in chapter 5. So the issue of forgiveness is not that you gain the eternal forgiveness of God by forgiving others. Salvation offers the eternal forgiveness of God to anyone who trusts in Christ's death and resurrection alone as the answer to sin. 
Salvation is already in play for the disciples. They have already experienced salvation, or they're framed as experiencing salvation in our text. The eternal forgiveness that enters one into a relationship with God is not in question in this passage. It only is in question for you who have not sought the Lord for forgiveness of sin by placing your trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That is an act of faith in which you acknowledge that you are in desperate need of God alone to provide a solution for his coming wrath against your sin. And then you trust Christ alone to provide this salvation to you because he alone died for sin and he alone rose from the dead to offer eternal life. This is the message that you must believe for salvation prior to any talk about forgiving other people. You need forgiveness from God more than you need anything else in this world. That is a decision you need to make today. And if you have made or need to make or want to make that decision today, please come see me right after service so we can discuss this decision. But once you have made that decision or once you have actually been forgiven of your sin and the wrath of God due to them, you are now a child of God. You have entered into a relationship with God. As a child of God, you must then do what your Father in heaven has done. When you ask your Father in heaven to forgive you of all the sins of your life, of all the sins in childhood and teen and young adult years, which were many, by the way, all from your adult life and from those we have yet to commit, even those that are future, he let them all go. And here's where we need to be sober about the millions of sins he has wiped out from each one of our souls before him, not just collectively, but among each one of us when we rightly think about sin. Withholding forgiveness from others does not have the Father in focus, but people. We do not want to be seen as weak, vulnerable, gullible, impotent, prey, or available for sport by those who have influence, significance, power in our lives, and our trust of them. And we want to make sure justice for their wrongs is served by our hatred of them or our refusal to let go of guilt. No, we scream. They do not deserve forgiveness for what they have done. They do not get to get away with their hurt, their crimes, sins, and breaking of my trust. We are controlling this narrative of justice to make sure no one gets away. Now, in a very real sense, we are right to feel this way. Those haters, those abusers, those thieves, cheaters, rebels, bigots, racists, liars, backstabbers, schemers, and murderers, they took away everything from us. They took away emotional stability, sanity, years of your life and health, your life savings, your ability ever again to trust anyone, your sense of safety or of hope, or maybe they even took away another person you loved with all of your heart. They callously covered it up, mocked you, kicked you while you were down, left you alone at your most desperate moment in life. The very thought or mention of the name of that person, family, or institution sends a shot of pain or anger or fear through our bodies. And like me, 
if you could convince God and the law to look the other way for just 30 seconds, you would get a monster truck and run them all over and then throw it into reverse. Don't look at me like that, like you're holier and that we should never feel that way because you know you would, or at one point in life when you were really in deep pain, you did feel that way. And if not, you have never been hurt deeply enough to wrestle with your forgiveness of someone. But I imagine we all have been. But God does not and cannot look the other way because his name is holy. And to pray to him is to ask that all of our actions, including whether or not to forgive someone, that all of our actions might honor him as one who is holy. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Our holy heavenly father does not forgive on the basis of what we deserve. We deserve the hottest, darkest, demon-filled, fiery, hopeless, joyless, horrifying, and everlasting condemnation and punishment away from the presence of God. Our sins are crimes against God and seek to abuse and reject his great love for us. But Jesus, this is where you insert the hallelujah right here, but Jesus not on the basis of what we deserve, wiped out all of our debts we have before God when we placed our trust in his death for us and his resurrection from the dead. We did not die for the crimes we committed against God. Jesus died. We could not overcome death because sin is the guarantor that death will keep its hold on us and will keep us down in the grave forever and ever. Jesus overcame death, vacated the tomb, and took us all with him when he left the grave, and we did not get what we deserve. So let's stop talking in terms of what people deserve. That language comes out of the vocabulary of our hearts and minds right now. If you do not forgive and wipe clean the wrongs of others, forget about the reward of the Father. You might get to control the justice narrative in a way that pleases you. But at the expense of having no forgiveness from God and no ongoing development in your relationship with God. So go home today after the sermon. Look your spouse in the eye or call your best friend who knows you well. Uh, as well or better than you know yourself and ask, is there someone I am not forgiving as far as you can see? If so, tell me who it is so I can release that person from my desire to see justice brought down upon that person without mercy. Or say, I know I need to forgive X person or persons. I am confessing to you so that you can direct me in wisdom and meekness toward the path of forgiveness. I want to please the Father. Or if the wrong is at the level that requires professional therapy, please talk to your therapist or go make an appointment with a therapist about your inability to let go of your anger and trust because of the depth of your pain. I can recommend some within our own congregation. And please don't say, no, I'm one of those people who will not ever need therapy. I can figure this out. Ask your family and friends. They will tell you, yes, you need to go see a therapist. <laughs> Remember, too, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same things. Reconciliation requires an acknowledgement of wrongdoing and repentance on the part of the wrongdoer and a pattern of new, safe, and trustworthy behaviors towards you. 
Forgiveness is something that takes place inside of us before God in which we create a new identity for the wrongdoer, says Lewis Smedes. That is, rather than seeing them as powerful, we now see them as weak persons who felt they needed to hurt others. Rather than seeing them as criminals, we see them as sinners in need of mercy. This is something we can do both toward the living and the dead. If someone has already passed on, we can still release them in that way. But the living are concerned of debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because we presently want the reward of God the Father. Third and lastly, those who use their money in line with the gospel gain the reward of the Father. Those who use their money in line with the gospel gain the reward of God the Father. Matthew 19, Matthew 6, verse 19, which Monica already read for us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Jesus' explanation of the relationship between treasures and personal allegiances encourages us to set our affections on the eternal rather than the temporal. Jesus compares treasures on the earth and heaven and allegiances to two masters. He shows that the place of treasures captures the heart. Your heart will be also. It's where our affections will set their focus or their allegiances. Jesus then employs two figures of speech. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. That's a metaphor, an implicit comparison, comparing the use of a lamp to shine light to the use of the eye to shine things into the body through seeing when the eye is the instrument of the heart's affection. That is, when the seeing of the eye turns to desire, it tells the body what is desirable. I like what I see in that catalog. I like what I see on that web page. I like what I see when I'm window shopping. I like what I just saw on TV. I like what I see in your house. I like what I see in your garage. I like what I see on your back. And now I want that. I need that thing. That's what Jesus is talking about. The second figure adds to eye as a lamp the idea of I as healthy or sick. That would be the way to understand bad in con contrast to healthy I. It alludes to a diseased I. When your eye is sick, your whole body is affected by its illness. So Jesus overlays the health of the real eye on the figure of the eye as lamp. Now the eye as lamp functions according to its health. Good and bad, therefore, are references to desires for treasure on earth versus treasures in heaven. So here's what we have so far. One location experiences destruction from moth, rust, and thieves, and the other location does not. One 
location says money is temporal while God is not. As the topic in question concerns setting one's affections on the eternal rather than the temporal, laying up treasures for yourself in heaven means to do things that will place our heart's focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. This is more than tithing or free will offering and giving money to missions, but it's not less. It's not less than that. This includes practicing all parts of Christian living, including praying for the persecuted, serving the poor, visiting the grieving, giving thanks for the things we have, being contented in all circumstances, standing up for justice, proclaiming the gospel to lost people in our personal fears of influence, walking in greater humility, maintaining daily personal and corporate worship, and seeking the forgiveness and giving forgiveness for sins. All of these disciplines and everything else we are to do in obedience to our Savior contribute to giving us an eternal focus so that earthly treasures are kept in their proper perspective. We keep looking at the things of God and our Savior, and it keeps us from seeing too much glamour and being too enamored with the things of this life. This message challenges almost everything we think about our view of money. Money is not neutral, and our feelings about money, riches, wealth, investing, travel, vacationing, and material acquisition matter. It is easy to desire and collect things that will perish and to allow those things to get in the way of greater affection for God. Jesus does not say we can have both. He says that one makes it impossible to have the other. Consider John Piper's thoughts with me here. Long quote. How does a person serve money? He does not assist money. He is not the benefactor of money. How then do we serve money? Money exerts a certain control over us because it seems to hold out so much promise of happiness. It whispers with force, think and act so as to get into a position to enjoy my benefits. This may include stealing, borrowing, or working. Money promises happiness, and we serve it by believing the promise and walking by that faith. So we don't serve money by putting our power at its disposal for its good. We serve money by doing what is necessary so that money's power will be at our disposal for our good. Piper goes on to say, I think the same sort of service to God must be in view in Matthew 6.24. Since Jesus puts the two side by side, you cannot serve God and money. So if we are going to serve God and not money, then we are going to have to open our eyes to the vastly superior happiness which God offers. Then God will exert a greater control over us than money does, unquote. That's a tall order. Jesus does not in any way leave us with a both-and situation when it comes to our monetary and material treasures. He says it's one or the other, just like he says with pleasing people or the Lord, just like he says with being forgiven or not being forgiven. His demands for a life greater than the righteousness of the religious crowds are high, but the reward is awesome. With the most recent changes in the federal tax law, you have reason to be concerned about 
your money. I just did my taxes, and first of all, I can't believe how much having one less child on your taxes means for how much more you might owe the government. That was interesting to find out. But also to realize that in the coming years, there will be no ex exemptions. That means for many in the middle class, we might end up owing far more than we've ever owed. But with 6.4 billion people on the planet without Christ, and over 8 million of them among Chicago's 9.2 million residents, this is not the time to stop investing our money in the work of the gospel in order to protect our own futures. This, like all times, is a time to consider whether we want God as God or money as our God. Jesus makes it an either-or proposition in the strongest terms, healthy eye, bad eye, light, darkness, love, hate, devoted, serve, cannot serve God and money. You and I are going to make the choice for the reward of the Father. We are going to choose to serve God rather than money. For ultimately, we all know that the reward of the Father is Jesus himself. <laughs> yeah, Jesus is the reward of the Father. Giving to the needy doesn't get me trumpets blowing. It gets the smile of Jesus, who though he was rich, Scripture says he became poor for our sakes. Praying in my closet doesn't get the applause of people awed by rhetoric, but it does get Jesus accomplishing the will of heaven on earth for me and in me. It gets Jesus showing up at my moment of desperation before I ask and providing for every one of my needs and your needs. It gets Jesus blotting out sins that would have me suffer the wrath of God. It gets Jesus keeping me back from the temptations and traps of the evil one into which I would rush headlong without the grace of Jesus. Laying up treasures in heaven will not get me all of the creaturely comforts and conveniences of this life, which is so short in light of eternity. But laying up treasure in heaven will give me Jesus, who is God and who has more might than all of the financial buying power known to humankind. Only with Jesus can you say, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Only, only, only when our priority concerns the things that please God, praying for his presence only, forgiving the way that he has forgiven us, giving to him because money is not our God. Only when our priority concerns the things that please God do we get the reward of the Father. And we all know that that reward is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we, we bless you for your, your mercy and your kindness in speaking to us, in showing us our sin, in removing them from us, in drawing us into your holiness. God, your Son is the Savior of the world. And we can't be fooled by the earthly things of this life. We must live in the present. Present, and there is a city of man among which we dwell or live beside, even though we are part of the city of God. Please, oh God, help our, our eyes to be healthy. 
Cause us to have a singular focus in prayer, an audience of one, and may that be you. Move on our hearts to forgive the way that you are forgiving God. And then would you take our pains and our tears and our sorrows and our hurts and our injustices, would you accomplish victory by your mercy? We love you today, Lord Jesus. We're so in love with you and all that you mean to us. Bless Calvary Memorial Church and all who are here today with the reward of the Father. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.